This message comes from NPR sponsor, Discover. Tired of not getting a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Hey there, I'm Brittany Luce, and you're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR, a show about what's happening in our culture and why it doesn't happen by accident. This week, I want us to look at who we hold up to represent us. What happens when we take an American classic and recast it through a Black lens? Or the question we'll start with today. What happens when someone tries to be a representative of an entire population by stretching the truth? Hello, Thank you so much. Welcome to Act. That's comedian Hassan Minaj. He became famous from his stand-up specials and his Netflix show, Patriot Act, where he spotlighted big social and political issues. People hear affirmative action, they often think, oh, he got that job because he's black. She got that job because she's Hispanic. He got that job because he hates blacks and Hispanics. Think The Daily Show, or Last Week Tonight, but from the perspective of a South Asian Muslim American millennial. His comedy blends political commentary with his own stories, so he'll go from talking about Black Lives Matter and student loan debt to sharing personal stories about the discrimination he's faced as a brown man in America. He grabs a stack of letters, he hands them to me, I rip it open, I flip it over, and all this white powder falls into the stroller. And it falls on my daughter's shoulder. Except many of these personal stories weren't true. And look, we all know that stand-up comedians embellish or even fully invent funny stories to punch up their routines, but Minaj's stories weren't just about a drunken night out or a disappointing hookup. And the investigator reaches into his pocket. He goes, Mr. Minhaj, you're very lucky. This isn't real anthrax. The New Yorker recently dug into key parts of Minaj's stand-up and found that many of his routines didn't stand up to fact-checking. Had he actually rushed his daughter to a hospital after fearing she'd been exposed to anthrax from hate mail sent to his home. When asked, Minaj said, quote, My comedy Arnold Palmer is 70% emotional truth and then 30% hyperbole, exaggeration, fiction. When I read the article, it was so fascinating how his phrasing of emotional truths actually... Yes. It kind of gave me the language to articulate the complex feeling I had towards Hassan's comedy. That's Imran Siddiqui. They're a writer and filmmaker who's written about Minaj in the past. I sat down with them and journalist Alana Akhtar, whose recent essay unpacks this situation, to talk about this idea of emotional truths. Minaj thinks that even though those stories weren't true, they were resonant and representative of other brown people's experiences making them emotionally true. Being brown and Muslim in this country, I feel like I really resonated with Hassan more than any other brown comic of his generation. But while these emotional truths might provide some much-needed representation, they're also messy. I don't know if disappointed is the right word. Mm. I feel like I was taken aback maybe a little bit. Mm. This is a person who I can't look at as just being, like, wholly representative. Some people think that Minaj's tall tales are not a big deal. Others now see his comedy as a betrayal. But one thing I think we can all agree on, representation 
has its limits. Alana, Imran, welcome to It's Been a Minute. Hi. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. My pleasure, my pleasure. Going back to this idea of emotional truths, in the article, Minaj talked about how these fabricated stories were in service of him getting an emotional truth about being a South Asian Muslim man in America across to audiences. I wonder, why was this a strategy that seemed to work for him? Let's start with Alana. It can go both ways. You can either take him at his word and say, this really did shed light on the real discrimination that brown Muslim people faced in this country, which it did. Mm -hmm. But also, like, is it also maybe him wanting to, like, further his career by exploiting some of this discrimination? Mm -hmm. People of color, when they want to sit at a seat in the white liberal table, talk a lot about the fact that they are discriminated against, you know, in these ways. Mm. People write college essays about everything bad that's happened to them. like Right, so they can, like, hopefully maybe get into a good school or something. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. Despite resonating with so many parts of his story, having grown up in this country, raised Muslim, South Asian, I always felt there was was something off about it and how Hassan's comedy seemed to fit into a narrative that I thought people in Hollywood, white men, were more Mm. open to receiving. That's interesting. The stories that Hassan was telling or the way in which he was telling them made them appealing maybe to like a white male comedic sensibility that kind of rules in Hollywood. But I'd really like to hear from you about this, Imran. Like, why do you think the way in which Hassan Minaj told his stories, why do you think that strategy seemed to work for him and make him such a success? You know, I think Hassan's special, it did also very much speak to South Asians, Muslims. Mm-hmm. I've been at home this week, so I've been with a lot of my family, and we've been talking about this. And one of the things that, you know, folks have mentioned is seeing Hassan for the first time and feeling like he was different. It's not just, it's not necessarily because he was funny, <laughs> his, <laughs> but because his... uh he was talking about things in a different way. He wasn't afraid to be brown. And so hmm. I think the disappointment that some people have felt is that you find out he's fabricating stories. It's like, who is that for? Because we would have heard you. Right. We would have understood. Mm. And so like the need to fabricate does seem to then change the way we might have viewed those early specials. Because then it's like, were you speaking to us or to a white audience? Because there are choices made, it's almost like you're further underlining the fact that this is a narrative and not just your own life story. Then you have to ask of the comedian, of Hassan, why this story? Why tell it this way? Hmm. Why fabricate, for instance, a story about the pursuit of a white woman and the rejection and how it made you feel? Okay, so let's walk through one of Hassan Minaj's fake stories. In his Netflix comedy special, Homecoming King, he describes being asked to prom by a white girl from Nebraska. She's like, listen, you know, um, I was wondering, will you go to prom with me? And I was like, yes, my white princess. But as soon as I said that, I was like... Fast forward to prom night, and Minaj shows up at the white girl's house, only to be greeted by her mother, who says... You know, we have a lot of family back home in Nebraska... And we're going to be taking a lot of photos tonight. So we don't think it'd be a good fit. According to Minaj, he's been rejected by this white girl's family because of the color of his skin. I'd eaten off their plates. I'd kissed their daughter. I didn't know that people could be bigoted, even as they were smiling at you. But 
none of that happened. The girl had actually turned down Minaj days before. Minaj defends his telling because, quote, there are so many other kids who have had a similar sort of doorstep experience. The more you learn is fabricated, the more you think of this as a story and a storytelling choice. You know, that woman does exist and she has since been harassed. And Hassan invited her to a show where he told this story and she felt humiliated by that. All of that doubling down, it still kind of, to me, says something about not just the desire, but the choice to tell that story in that particular way, mm-hmm. knowing that it wasn't true. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I feel like it definitely felt like very familiar, I will say. Like growing up, people I went to high school with would say things like, oh, like I'm only into white women. Like I would never date like a brown girl. I would never date a Pakistani girl. And I feel like they had this odd obsession with needing to be validated by white women. Mm. I feel like I could picture like someone who I went to high school with reacting in the same way. Yeah, I would agree. Yeah, Imran, you've written about this extensively. One of the things I think that is so true about masculinity and being a man, quote-unquote, in the Western context, it's like the only people allowed to be men are white. But really, all men are taught to think that they're never quite man enough. Hmm. You have to keep doing things in order to prove your manhood. And one of the central Hmm. things you're taught is that acquiring the attention and affection, but also like really service from women is one way Hmm. you prove that you're a man. And if you go deeper into it, because race is always there, to be a real man in this culture, you have to have the attention of white women. And so one way you first start to think about it is through the lens of, I'm not treated as a real man in this community. And that's a real experience, but your first understanding of it might come through the fact that these other people who are considered real men, they're always showing off that they can get the attraction of white women. So put it on the tombstone. Hassan Minaj, 4.3 GPA, kissed a white girl, we out here. What an amazing way to go. It's part of a larger cultural phenomenon of like the way you can prove that you're a real man is that white women were into you. And Mm. this is part of what I think is interesting about that moment with all the different South Asian men who were being given platforms in Hollywood and all of them happened to have stories about white women. You know, I, I just think that mm, that... Like uh-huh. the big sick, master of none, et exactly. cetera, et cetera. Yeah, there was also uh, the Patels, even on a smaller scale. You know, I think that mm. it's just something there that has to do with like, how do I show you that I'm a real man? And... uh I think that's part of it. Yeah. Hmm. I think he did kind of mention in his first special, like, how he met his wife, Pina, who is Indian. But it was for a much shorter amount of time that he spent talking about this white women. So as a woman of color, it seems like brown men, like, I don't know, like, don't even, like, want us in the room. Like, don't Hmm. even want us around. You know, it's like, where do we go? I wonder, how does all of that feel connected to the accusations of gender-based discrimination from the women who worked on Patriot Act, Minaj's show on Netflix. Some of those women also had concerns about the truth in his comedy. 
Yeah, it's interesting because there was this part of the article that said that the researchers who were, I believe, women of color, were trying to kind of like push back or kind of tell them like, this is what I fact checked, this is what I found. And then, you know, it seemed like Hassan didn't want to hear it and sent them in the hall to, you know, just kind of sit there for an hour as, you know, other presumably mostly men talked about this and stuff. So it feels like not really taking like the perspective of women seriously. And it's always like, you know, women of color who are pushed out, like pushed out of the room completely. Yeah, a colleague of mine kind of situated Hassan in the rise of quote-unquote representation merchants, which is a phrase I did not know until <laughs> this colleague gave it to me last week. <laughs> a quick Twitter search told me that it's been out there for some time, but I hadn't heard it before. And it, I was like, oh, this is the phrase that I've needed to describe so many things. Hassan very much presented himself as representation for South Asian Muslims in America. And I wonder what's happening with him now, this whole moment. What does all this say about the limits of representation in general? You just can't ever get, like, representation, I don't think. Like, you know, like, I I can never just look at one person for being, like, completely representative of who I am or who, you know, this group of people is because it's just never, it's never going to happen. I don't think it's all on these people, too. I think that, like, some Mm. of this was put onto them by white people. Absolutely. Because it's easy, right? Because, you know, like, if white people could say, oh, actually, like, I know what it's like to be brown in America because I watched the Hasan Minaj special. (laughs) And and I think also, like, uh, when you're not white and you're given an opportunity, yet it's framed in a way where it's like, this is such a big deal. You're so special, you know, because you got into the room. And I think it's so hard to not feel that. And I'll also say just personally, like, I've, I've been there too, you know. It starts very young. It's like you get opportunities. Hmm. And as a person who's not white, you can think of them as either like, this is because I'm special. And I, I don't know. It's a challenge to balance it between like your own skills And then also Mm -hmm. like, oh, okay, I look the way I do. When you frame it that way, that's something I certainly understand. Like you get a series of opportunities and you can sort of be like, this is happening because I'm so special (laughs) and because I'm going to help everyone. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Me doing this is good for all of us. (laughs) I know. (laughs) I also see shades of this disgraced representation merchant dynamic across many different marginalized groups. I mean, I see it happen with Black people on Twitter six times a week. (laughs) Like, at some point, somebody is always the donkey of the day. And so when I saw this situation happening with Hassan Minaj, I was just like, oh, this feels like a different version of something that I've seen happen in my own community a thousand times over. Right, right. There's also something to the fact that, like, his stories were funny stories. There's a desire from, I think, a lot of Americans, period, to have their learning experiences always be mediated by fun, pleasure, and entertainment. Yeah. Learning is not fun. Being clued into what's going on in the world is not fun. And in some ways, like, having, like, a funny person tell you a story with a punchline or a story in a very gripping or arresting way is going to be unfortunately, what some people prefer. I feel like that's kind of part of it, too, that people are looking for an entertainment figure to explain the world to them so that they don't have to engage in something as deeply. Yeah, totally. Yeah, I think wanting our stories told by people who are familiar or who tell them in familiar ways, Hmm. we all kind of want that sometimes or have that feeling culturally 
it's worth interrogating and, and challenging. I think we can critique the media that we love. We don't have to see a critique as disposing of somebody or something. Hmm. Hmm. Imran, Alana, thank you so much for coming on the show. This was such a great discussion. I had been waiting to unpack this and I'm so glad I got to do it with both of you. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you. That was filmmaker Imran Siddiqui and writer Alana Akhtar. You can read Alana's essay, Hasan Minaj, Friend or Foe, at The Juggernaut. In stretching stories to represent an entire group of people, Hasan Minaj inadvertently hurt the very people he was trying to help. But what happens if we take a story that doesn't represent us at all and remake it? We'll be right back. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Homes.com. Homes.com knows having the right agent can make or break your home search. That's why they provide home shoppers with an agent directory that gives you a detailed look at each agent's experience, like the number of closed sales in a specific neighborhood, average price range, and more. It lets you easily connect with all the agents in the area you're searching, so you can find the right agent with the right experience and ultimately the right home for you. Homes.com. We've done your homework. This message comes from NPR sponsor FX, presenting Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX's Clipped, streaming June 4th, only on Hulu. Support for NPR and the following message come from Sattva. Sattva luxury mattresses are every bit as elegant as the most expensive brands, but because they're sold online, they're about half the price. Visit com slash NPR and save an additional $200. The story of Hasan Minaj exposes the limits of representation, but now I want to explore its possibilities. What happens when you take an American classic that doesn't represent you at all and retell it in a way that resonates? How does the story have to change to represent you? And how do those changes ripple out? One of the most iconic retellings of all time is also one of Broadway's biggest hits and also happens to be one of my favorite musicals. I'm talking about the 1975 classic, The Wiz. Now ease on down to the Broadway theater and see America's hit musical version of the wonderful Wizard of Oz. The Wiz is a wow. I love the OG Wizard of Oz, but The Wiz is a vibe. It's got a little extra kick to it that is just irresistible. You've got to be seen green to show that your stuff's lame. If you're not seen green, you better be And it's not just me. The music and imagery of The Wiz shows up all across pop culture, whether or not you know it. Think Beyonce's Homecoming or this summer's Renaissance Tour. Last week, a national tour of The Wiz kicked off in Baltimore, and it was announced that the show's coming back to Broadway next spring. Now, none of the main cast members in The Wizard of Oz were Black. It was 1939. I'll leave it there. But The Wiz is a retelling of the original with an all-Black cast. 
I wanted to dig more into how this retelling changes a story and what those changes say about race in America. Obviously, I had to bring in a whiz kid. See what I did there? (laughs) Please don't roll your eyes. And luckily, it's been a minute producer Corey Antonio Rose was easy to reach. Brittany. Corey Antonio. It's your favorite producer, Corey Antonio, back. I don't have favorites. I cherish you all equally. Right. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm here to tell you about The Wiz. Okay. But first, Uh I'm going to test your knowledge of The Wizard of Oz, the OG source material. Okay. In the 1939 MGM film classic starring Judy Garland, what is the overall message of The Wizard of Oz? There's no place like home. Boom. Got it. There's no place like home. Ding, ding, ding. But when you watch The Wiz, that famous line doesn't even make an appearance. Wait. I didn't even really realize that. But you're right. Oh, yeah. Okay. That's interesting. It's like such an iconic phrase in the first film. And then it's not even in The Wiz. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, The Wiz comes out in the mid-70s. And so the progress from the civil rights era has dried up. America isn't necessarily feeling like an idealistic home to a lot of Black Americans. So it makes sense that the moral of The Wiz has to shift a little bit. Hmm, mm. And so it becomes Believe in Yourself, which is most clear in the song literally titled, If You Believe. Believe that you can go home. I love that song. Okay, so I also know in adapting The Wizard of Oz to The Wiz, they change the music to be more soulful, and I know the aesthetics change, but do the characters themselves change? Well, Dorothy is much different. She's a lot stronger, and instead of crying through the film, she's the one pulling her friends throughout the show. You hear this in the song Be a Lion. You're standing strong and tall you're the brave mm, yeah cause she's like hyping him she's like get it together do what you gotta do cause you gotta be, be a, a lion. lion exactly right these range from like really subtle shifts in characterization to like kind of totally different approach to the story with regard to even just Dorothy right and now the Broadway musical is coming back how do you see or what do you see as the legacy of The Wiz. Before The Wiz, most of the narratives about Black Broadway shows were within the context of sharecropping and Jim Crow. Mm. So think Porgy and Bess. Cabin in the Sky. Right, right, right. Curly. Right. You got it. And so The Wiz was bringing something completely new, not in necessarily the source material or the original story, but in that it bathed Black people in this glamorous light. And the material was speaking uniquely to our experiences. Beyond, you know, the never-ending fight for civil rights. Hmm. After The Wiz, we saw so much more glamour in the productions that followed. I'm thinking about Ain't Misbehavin' or, of course, you know, the pivotal classic Dreamgirls. Dream Girls. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, these shows that sort of recast Black people in a light that is not only glamorous but aspirational. Hmm. It's partly thanks to The Wiz that we can imagine ourselves in these narratives beyond, you know, sharecropping and slavery. Hmm. You know, it's very interesting. It's just like the idea that it's, it might be the most 
notable like Black American fairy tale. And I hadn't thought about that, and I think that's really interesting. Well, thank you for letting me share it with you. I'm so glad you shared it with me. This is so much fun. That was It's Been a Minute producer Corey Antonio Rose. Coming up, we zoom out to look at other Black American fantasies and how we use them to not only reflect, but reshape our world. This message comes from NPR sponsor FX, presenting Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX's Clipped, streaming June 4th, only on Hulu. I'm Jesse Thorne. Why did Cola Scola write a bonkers, extremely fictionalized play about Mary Todd Lincoln? Well, you know, it was 2020 and we were all so isolated. I I just started doing research. uh, But the truth is, no, I just thought of it. We'll talk about that and more on Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Do you wish stories could unfold over three hours rather than three minutes? You tired of doom scrolling? Trying to find humanity? Or maybe a deeper understanding of why the world is the way it is? Listen to Embedded, NPR's original documentary series. Find us wherever you get your podcasts. The Wiz was one of the first huge examples of retelling a Western, mostly white story with Black characters. Since then, we've seen other traditionally white characters get recast, like when my girl Brandy played Cinderella in the 90s and the recent Little Mermaid remake starring Halle Bailey. We've also seen this happen with superheroes like Catwoman and Spider-Man. Some of these recastings are part of a larger trend centering Black characters in fantasy, be they fairy tales, comic books, or horror. And there has been backlash, but Black fantasy characters are part of a much longer history that stretches back further than any yellow brick road. To dive deeper into the idea of representation and representation in fantasy, I've got my next guest, Dr. Derek Scott, an African-American literature professor at the University of California, Berkeley. Derek, welcome to It's Been a Minute. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. We're happy to have you. We're happy to have you. For me, when I think of fairy tales, I'm thinking... This is not real mm-hmm. life. This is a form of escapism, mm-hmm. you know. But but in your writing and research, you describe fantasy as a type of engagement mm-hmm. with reality. I found that very surprising. What do you mean by that? My point of view is that fantasy is actually always an engagement with reality. You're always taking some aspect of reality as you perceive it and reimagining mm-hmm. it. Yes, it provides a certain escape. But it also is doing something with your mind, right, where your own consciousness is involved in imagining a different reality than the one that you exist in. Hmm. That's a short-term kind of experience of yourself that is, I think, wonderful and important. The longer term is the more you're doing some of that, little by little, you're helping to, I think, free your consciousness. You can't track the effects of that as... Okay, and then that makes us have President Obama or something. It's much more subtle, and I think it's much more slow, Hmm. but all kinds of fantasies get used against us, right? That is, it's really a fantasy and an awful fantasy that 
dark skin represents savagery or hypersexuality or evil, evil or, or stupidity hmm. or all those things like that's all a projection of a fantasy that Europeans had when they decided that they needed to colonize and enslave people yeah, yeah. Mm. those are all fantasies they're not real they become real by they're constantly practicing the fantasy as being true. And of course, by their using weapons and whips and chains and murder and terror to enforce it. But it hmm. isn't real. You mentioned that fantasy stories with regard to like African-American heritage and culture is kind of like a, a later invention. I, I'd like to hear a little bit more about that. Like how has the creation of fantasy changed over time hmm. for African-Americans? What I study is African-American literature the beginnings of African-American literature are the, the slave narratives. That is the people who escaped slavery, who then dictated their stories to somebody, or as in the case of Frederick Douglass, mm-hmm. acquired literacy and wrote them themselves. And those, of course, are all about slavery and have little to do with fantasy. And I don't think you really see for quite some time, that is until maybe around the 60s, 70s, 80s, an engagement with the fantastic that's very conscious on the part of African-American writers. Hmm. It isn't true, though, that there's no fantastic elements before that. Hmm. There are all all kinds of things that are either sci-fi or magical that show up from the Harlem Renaissance forward and even before that, where Hmm. you're even like Charles Chestnut looking at conjure tales about hoodoo and Black traditions of magic. Right, right, right. Those things are all there in all kinds of texts, all kinds of texts within the the African-American literary canon well before the period I'm focusing on here when I say the 60s, 70s, and 80s. But Mm -hmm. at that point, when the Black Power Movement comes along and you have the Black Arts Movement going along with the Black Power Movement, so the Black Arts Movement is trying to use art forms, you know, poetry, plays, to get people to be activists, make people resist the segregation that was so much just a part of the fabric of American life. Mm -hmm. Then... I think that opens up the importance of imagination. Hmm. You know, the stories that we tell are often a reflection of our Mm -hmm. times. You know, I I wonder, with that in mind, in what ways are our most notable African-American fairy tales or fantasies, or fantasy stories, rather, reflective of the world they were born into? Hmm. There's a a very old folktale, is what we call it. You could call it a fantasy. Mm -hmm. The People Could Fly is one, one of the titles for the story. Yes. I think it was a, Vir- a Virginia Hamilton children's book. I think when I was a kid, I, I had yes, that one. Yes, you collected. Mm-hmm. The, the, those are old folklore where the idea was mm-hmm. there were people, you know, were, obviously they were, were captured, brought to the United States, enslaved. But they could always fly. And they'd forgotten they could fly. And so in the midst of being you know, beaten in the fields, one of the old sages remembers, we can fly, and starts saying these words. They're actually just Yoruba names. And you say those Yoruba names Mm. and then the wings sprout and you start flying and you go back to Africa, right? Which is a kind of, Mm. certainly is emerging out of that time, a desire to get out, desire to return to home, which, you know, again, we're going to reference the whiz on that, to return to home. Mm -hmm. And that comes out of that time. And I think now, because there's so much that it's almost hard to keep track of, that I think it's, you know, definitely a response to what we could now think of as like the Black Lives Matter. It's emerging out of those moments where there's a a lot of pessimism, a lot of anger, and also a lot of determination to 
push back. I want to pull apart this idea of representation. Mm. Tell me about your idea of representation. My producer, Corey Antonio, says that uh, your idea of it is heavy on the re Mm -hmm. in representation. Talk to me about that. Well, this is not my idea, but it's one that I very much believe in. That There's a difference between representation when we think about it in politics, which is that somebody in the government is to represent your point of view and represent your Mm -hmm. interests. And representation in art, where things are being represented, and it's not really a question of what should happen in art is that, you know, you have a Black character who shows up, like it's got to somehow represent the full reality of Black people. Like that's not a, it's one, not possible, but that also isn't really the way that art works. It's not the way that any of these stories really work, that they're necessarily reflecting our own positions. They are representing them in a way that's different, that's illuminating certain aspects of life or of our imaginations or of our struggles. It's a process that isn't aimed at reflection in that way. Hmm. Uh, It's actually aimed at changing what you think. And so, yeah, for me, representation is never one-to-one. Like, I'm looking at a novel about a Black gay character, and that's representing me. I don't think so. It's not. It can't. Even one that I write that can't do that. It's actually, (laughs) it's a representation. So it's not so much like literally showing you yourself, like a mirror image or something like that, which is, I think, a part of how many people think about representation, to be honest. Even myself, to a certain degree, I'm very big on like, I like to see something new or I like to see something true. Mm -hmm. If it seems off and it's not interesting or new, Mm -hmm. then I'm already, I'm out. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You lost to me. But that's an interesting way of thinking about it. Like it's not meant to be a mirror like the same way that a memoir is not the exact same as living somebody's life. It's, it's a reframe of, of certain course. key events in a narrative format. Of course. But nobody has full access to even their own experience in the past. So the ability to reflect, to have a mirror, is actually not something that we really have available to us in any form. Hmm. So how could we expect that of the stories that we watch and listen to and read? Yeah, you can't expect that of an artist. I want to go back for a second to this whole African-Americanization of certain fairy tales or fantasy Mm -hmm. stories. We always see such a backlash with casting Mm -hmm. choices like Halle Bailey as Mm -hmm. Ariel and the Little Mm -hmm. Mermaid. Like I said, we even see backlash when there's Black actors for roles that seem explicitly written for Black people. Why Mm. why do we see that kind of backlash when these casting choices are made? In all these situations, what you're looking at is this. Something is a story that is not real, right? That it's not something that has happened. It is not a history. Uh, It's something that has been Mm -hmm. imagined. And what you see is that people are really attached to imagining that the characters in that are white. And it's surprising in in this way, in this respect, that really the character can be imagined as anything. Mm. But people get really exercised about their imagination being in some way affected by having a Black actor or a Black face in 
or brown face, uh, Asian face in a space where they wanted a white person there or they've seen only a white person there before. So what that tells you is what happens in fantasies isn't just something on the side. It's part of the process of how we educate ourselves into and how white people educate themselves into believing in white supremacy. Hmm. Hmm. It's like if my fantasies aren't being centered in this story, that's uh, something's being done to me or th- or that's a problem. Yes. But like it kind of goes back to your earlier point about how powerful fantasy can be. What are the limitations of fantasy? Well, the profound limitation is that no fantasy has any direct effect on external conditions. But even though it isn't real, I do maintain that fantasies that communities involve themselves in over time do change consciousness, changes in our social reality. And those are a lot harder to track. Uh, But remember, you have a bunch of fantasies that have created the reality we have today. So if you can change consciousness with sustained fantasies, that does have an effect in reality. Derek, thank you so much for joining me today. This was so much fun. It's great to talk to you. Great to talk to you too. That was Dr. Derek Scott, a professor of African-American studies at the University of California, Berkeley. His book is called Keeping It Unreal, Black Queer Fantasy and Superhero Comics. Hey, Brittany. Hey, Brittany. Hey, Brittany. Hey, Brittany. This is Hen from New York. I'm watching the new season of Love is Blind, and the vibes are just off. Like, everyone is crying so much. They are all traumatized, but they're also missing the personalities that made this show fun. Like, there's no singing in the pods. There's no fake tear eye drops. Literally, what is going on this season? Can't wait to hear your thoughts. Hey, Hen, thank you so much for calling in with this question. I love talking about messy dating reality shows. I kind of disagree. I'm loving this season, but I am a chaos agent, or at least I love to watch them on TV. However, as you know, everybody is trauma dumping this season. Somebody who has thought and written very intelligently and hilarious on this topic is friend of the show, Alex Abad Santos, for Bucks. He basically points out a lot of the same things that you have pointed out. Something that everybody seems to be doing this season is using sharing their traumas as a way to forge a connection that may otherwise just not be there. I understand that getting to know somebody and sharing key information about yourself is a part of the dating and mating process, but they're not really forming like a real romantic bond. This is the other thing I'll say is that maybe some of these trauma bonds are also one-sided. Like some of these guys, they're asking these girls, oh, be vulnerable with me. Tell me about yourself. Tell me about your past. And then they either want to use it against them, like in the case of Uche, who I can't even speak on right now because of the level of his betrayals. Or you're like somebody like Izzy, where it's just like you want a woman sharing with you. But he was so overwhelmed by the information that she had shared, which is just regular grown folk stuff. My man Izzy broke up with her. So I don't know. It's giving one-sided trauma bond. But what do I know? I've only been in therapy for 11 years. Here they go again, these sexy singles. Anyway, have a great weekend. And thank you so much for calling, Hen. If you have a thought or question about pop culture, send us a voice memo at ibam at npr.org. That's I-B-A-M at npr.org.
This episode of It's Been a Minute was produced by Barton Girdwood, Alexis Williams, Liam McBain, Corey Antonio Rose. This episode was edited by Jessica Placek, Bilal Qureshi. Engineering support came from Quasi Lee. We have fact checking help from Candice Bo Corkamp. Our executive producer is Verilyn Williams. Our VP of programming is Yolanda Sanguini. Our senior VP of programming is Anya Grundman. All right. That's all for this episode of It's Been a Minute from NPR. I'm Brittany Luce. Talk soon. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Discover. Get the service you deserve. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Summer is for going to the movie theater because it's too hot to stay home. It's for driving with the windows down, listening to your favorite music. It's for stretching out while you're on vacation to gobble up a TV show. For a guide to some of the TV, movies, and music we are most excited about this summer, listen to the Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast from NPR.